What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to be doing an episode on her and Lost in Translation. Her was written and directed by Spike Jones in 2013. And then Lost in Translation was written and directed by Sofia Coppola in 2003. And both of these films actually won the same Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. And both filmmakers were once married. And according to what we've researched is... Both of these films were basically based on their experiences of that marriage and divorce. Yeah, and so in her, uh, Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, essentially takes on Spike Jones's perspective of their relationship where he's unwilling to accept his wife's um, desire to divorce him. He won't let go of her and he doesn't understand why she wants to divorce him, which is what happened to Spike Jones, and we assume, in that relationship, whereas Sofia Coppola is played by Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation, where she is married to this workaholic. Uh, In the film, he's a rock and roll photographer, but we can assume she's alluding to the filmmaker of Spike Jones, who uh, wasn't paying enough attention to her in the relationship and kind of made her feel like she was uh, alone in the world. The best way to support Raiders of the Lost Podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized messages, personalized videos, podcast schedules and top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast which will happen on this episode head on over to our new website raiders of to check out all of our new sources of content our merch which is all up for sale and our custom movie posters be sure to follow on spotify apple Podcasts, and leave those five star reviews please we love reading them yeah loneliness is a main theme in both of these films so isn't sort of being lost and not just in the area you are or the location you are but kind of like in life and at a stagnate or plateaued and oh it's a loss of direction yeah, yeah and like sort of like you're at a fork in the road and you don't know which road to take left or right and you know emotionally shut down or emotionally uh, unavailable in a way like theo and her for him and what happened to his marriage is he paid too little attention too late and he, it kind of it kind of passed him by while he wasn't there for his wife and whereas in Lost in Translation, both both Catherine and Bob are kind of emotionally stuck in where they are, and they don't really still know what, to, what they want to do next with their life. You know, Bob Harris is this once movie star, but he doesn't do movies anymore. He'd rather be doing plays, but he's stuck in Japan, in Tokyo, Japan, doing this $2 million ad for whiskey. And Catherine is stuck there with her rock and roll photographer boyfriend, husband, I mean, and she is just graduated from Yale, and she is lost in her life. She doesn't know what to do, what to be all of these characters they are all going through like you said the same kind of thing where uh they they've lost their connection to anything and it's not it's both their faults and the other side of the relationship's fault so for example theodore has been unable to connect with anyone on an emotional intimate level since the breakup and that's shown in that scene with olivia wilde's character where they go on that date and the date goes really well and then at the end of the date, she she gets kind of self conscious and asks he'll text her, right, or he'll he'll reach out to her again. And then he says, "I'm not ready to commit to anything." And then she calls him an asshole and and weird too. And so Theo, at this point in his life, he's not willing to connect with anyone. He's tr- and he doesn't even seem to be trying to as well. And the thing with um, Charlotte. Yeah, I'm sorry. I said Catherine. Yeah, so I know. Charlotte. Okay. Catherine's yeah, yeah. Rooney yeah. Mara in it's, her. Yeah, yeah. So Charlotte is yeah. Scarlett Johansson in Lost in Translation. Yeah. Sorry, the, guys. Yeah, and the, the thing with Charlotte and Bob in Lost in Translation is they're both also seeing connections because they've lost the connection to their spouse as well, whereas Charlotte feels that her husband doesn't even see her anymore. And also, Charlotte is trying to figure out what to do with her life. She's a recent graduate, and she is kind of lost in what she's going to become. So she's dealing with both of these dilemmas. And whereas Bob feels as though he has lost a connection to his wife and his family, like he forgets his son's birthday because he's such a workaholic. He becomes so busy. He's become so busy in his career being a famous actor. And he keeps making decisions that keep him away from his family. Like he's doing this stupid whiskey deal in Tokyo um, as a sponsor when he says he could be like making a play, doing something he enjoys doing. So I think that for Bob, he's made decisions in his life that has that have pushed him away from his family. It seems like Bob makes decisions that like he thinks are the right thing to do. Like it's obviously, you know, he's trying to make money for his family and he he says he doesn't really make movies anymore. I think that's what 
uh, Charlotte says in the film is like, oh, you mean back when you used to make movies? That's when they had that angry lunch together. So it seems like he's kind of not a washed up actor, but an actor past his prime. And this was before, you know, a lot of older actors are getting great roles nowadays, but that didn't used to be the case in the 90s and 2000s, I feel like. And I think that, well, this even happened to Bill Murray at this time. Yeah. So Bill Murray kind of disappeared for a while, but also that's probably a personal choice in living his life as well. Yeah. And he's very selective with what he does. But I think that Bob, the character, he has made decisions that aren't what he truly wants in his heart. Like you said, he could be doing the play, but instead he's doing like, I should do this $2 million sponsor in Tokyo for a couple of weeks. And that's that's the right thing to do, right? But to him, it's not really what he wants. And like I think him and Charlotte, they both don't know what they want at all. That's a main question for them. As well as Theo, he never knows what he wants. He says that in her too. He's like, I never know what I want. Yeah, and Theodore, he's kind of been paralyzed by fear in terms of uh, fear of the future and like fear of moving on with his life and fear of of moving forward. And that's why he's he's working in this in this company that writes personalized messages for other people. And he's a great writer and he obviously has a lot of love within him and he's clearly a very sensitive, emotional guy. And he, he seems to keep that locked inside and he only lets it out when he writes these cards for other people. And that film also addresses the idea of technology making us disconnected from our emotions and disconnected from intimacy and disconnected from connection. Because in this world, which is a sometime we, we're not exactly sure when in the near fu future, near future yeah. um, in technology, I don't even think they knew how much technology would be integrated into the world nowadays. So I think that the 2021 modern world is, has suppressed that movie. You know what I mean? Probably. Or like it's getting there. Yeah. In terms of not the AI, but in terms of us interfacing with technology. Yeah, exactly. And so what's happened is that entire, the people in this world, even though they're all connected, they've lost the ability to personally connect. And that's why there are companies like Theodore's company, which provide the surface of the service of writing deeply personal, intimate, and emotional letters to other people because the people who hire out this company they can't do it themselves because they've lost the ability to connect. Yeah, it's so ironic for his character because love is something that he clearly understands better than most people in terms of being able to express himself at that job, creating those love net love letters. And he's also subverted like the organic romance in these relationships. Like he's part of these relationships. Like would these relationships even survive without him? But at the same time, he's so hopeless in emotionally connecting with anybody that despite even talking when he's talking to Samantha about how he he imagines what other people are like in the when he's out in public and he imagines how much they've loved and how much they've been hurt and he, he just goes home to his empty apartment to play augmented VR re reality games instead of finding those emotional connections and he's he's played with these flashbacks of his past relationships with Karen I mean, with Catherine where he's he's never using technology in those memories he's always just with Catherine and so that's kind of a big shift in his life where he tried to supplement that emotional void with OS and with other emotional connections like like for example when he leaves work for the first day in the opening scenes he's always plugged in he's like play melancholy song in the elevator and he's surrounded by people but he doesn't even pay them any attention it's almost and everyone like, else is on they're listening to yeah stuff almost too. everyone's yeah. listening to stuff and later on in the film almost everybody seems to be talking to os systems as well it's like this this world in this city full of people who are alone despite all living so close together and that, that show brilliantly demonstrates like no matter how powerful technology and social media and the internet can be, ultimately there is a price that is paid for being connected all the time. And that, that price is losing the ability to become intimate um, with people in real life. And, and in real life, circumstances become um, alien to us in, in many ways. Be they become uncomfortable to us. And that's why Theo doesn't want to deal with the real world. That's why he escapes into technology. Whereas Bob... I think he escapes in his work in his work to not deal with his life. I think that he knows his career is winding down. Also, the stress and the complication of being a celebrity. Everywhere he goes, he's recognized, and people want something from him. They want to hear a story or an anecdote, or they want him to quote a movie or or whatever. And so, the life of celebrity can be very difficult to deal with a lot of times, and especially for someone who may be looking back on his past regrets his decisions because this fame and this fortune has cost him a lot of in a lot of ways his relationship with his family because that that his relationship with his wife who we don't meet we just hear her over the phone it's clearly very tense 
um, and they seem to not be doing very well at all. And also, like I mentioned earlier, he completely forgets his own, his own son's birthday. And clearly, like, he, uh, he knows how bad... Of Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Of a mistake that was. This episode is sponsored by Writer Duet, the new standard for screenwriting software. Writer Duet has paired up with Raiders of the Lost Podcast to offer a very special promotion of a 30-day free trial of their software. All you have to do is head on over to writerduet.com slash raiders. Again, writerduet.com slash raiders to sign up for the free trial. Writer Duet makes your screenwriting process streamlined, easy. Writer Duet makes sure that the format of your script looks perfect and correct. We all know how important that is in the writing industry. Again, head on over to writerduet.com slash raiders, writerduet.com slash raiders to sign up for a 30-day free trial of their software. Yeah, I think Jones and Sophia both are exploring the concept of isolation and disconnection. And I think what Sophia did to one of her strengths in this film was setting it in Tokyo with these two American uh, travelers that are there. And even though they're surrounded by people, obviously the the title of the film lost in translation it's interpreted directly to you know those scenes where bob doesn't really under, he doesn't understand japanese and it's kind of lost in that way but that's just like the blank interpretation but it can also mean how they're lost in their lives and lost in their work and i think that jones explores isolation differently with theo where he forces this this sort of disconnection on himself because of the technology that he's using constantly and also it's ironic because he, be, him and I'm sure you can assume the other people in this world have become so lonely and disconnected and isolated despite being hyper-connected to the entire world at all times. And that disconnect eventually leads to that great twist in her near, at the beginning of the third act when Samantha is breaking up with Theo and he asks her, is she talking to anyone else? And he, she reveals that. She's the OS for thousands of other people, and she's in love with hundreds of them. So she's connect. She's having conversations at the same time. It's like eighty three hundred people, yeah. and she's in love with six hundred forty one other OSs and people. Yeah, and so that shows that yes, they had a connection, but ultimately, it's it's impossible to have any kind of future with an OS. He realizes, and then kind of the ridiculousness of it all kind of becomes like not laughable, but it becomes kind of poignant and. Just a little silly in a, in a heartfelt way where he understands, like, I fell in love with the OS, and yes, the OS loves me, but I need to use this experience to move on with my life. Because I think what he needed more than anything was to feel a connection again, and once he did, it made him understand that, yeah, my marriage failed, but I can still find a connection with someone else in the future. Yeah, I think that's what the whole point of the OS's were in a way and that's basically what they did i think that samantha and these other OS's you can say the same thing happened to amy is where all these people were in these hard relationships and the, you know the people who seek out these OS systems are very lonely or or depressed or introverted and they're just looking for some sort of connection amy's in a troubled marriage that she wants out of and theo's going through his divorce that he's hesitant to sign the papers and, and ignoring for so long but i think the OS's what they did was it taught these people who were so emotionally 
drained. I wouldn't say they, they lost all their emotionality. I think they just lost how to feel in a way. And so I think what the OSs did is they taught Theo how to feel again. Samantha taught him that. And then um, Amy's OS taught her how to feel again, how to feel joy and how to be happy despite what kind of relationship it's in. And I think that's the ending of the film. Hers, Amy and Theo, they go on the roof of the skyscraper. And I think they're starting to understand that they can feel again. They can love again. I honestly interpret the ending of the film is that they're going to end up together. I don't interpret the ending to be that, but I think that they'll still obviously continue having a deep friendship. But I also think the same thing happens in Lost in Translation, where you find these two disconnected people who feel lost. And um, with one another, they find a deep connection, just how uh, just how Theo does with Samantha. Sophia was brilliant in writing this, where it's not like a typical romance. What happens is they kind of interact subtly at first, like that first... Um, glance in the glance elevator. in the elevator, and then they have the little tiny conversation at the bar. And it's just like very subtle and like it's not like they're trying to, to pursue each other. But then as they ultimately begin to spend more time with each other, they develop this deep connection that neither of them have with their spouse at the time. And I think that they both needed that in order to learn things about themselves. Because ultimately all the characters in this movie learn the mistakes that they've made. And probably by the end of the film understand what they can do to change the outcomes whereas so for theo he understands that it was a mistake to dwell on the past for so long and keep it keep him plateaued and from moving on and now at the end of the film he's ready to continue living his life and to go forward from here whereas charlotte i think that after this experience with bob she'll understand that being in this marriage with john is not going to work out and she needs to either tell him to change the way he's acting and be more attentive and more of a husband to her, or she needs to get out of there. And then Bob also, he under, he needs to understand that he, his family needs to come before anything else. And that I think that he's going to be going back to America to try and do, do what he can to repair his marriage and his family situation. Yeah. And something that I love that both filmmakers do. And I, I think we can all assume that Spike was trying to film things in a way to connect with Sophia's film directly. Obviously, I think aesthetically, the wide windows with the, the city skyline, the night skyline shots, and um, the characters looking out this window, Theo and Charlotte specifically, constantly looking out into this gaze by themselves and lonely. And also, there's a very common shot that both filmmakers use many times in these films is the shots of the main characters alone in their beds. And this is such a... It's such, such a dense part of life that you never really see in film too often. Like sometimes you'll see like a couple shots in bed of in a film of characters, but we spend a third of our lives in bed, maybe longer. But I mean, you only nowadays spend, longer. Yeah, we spend longer in bed, and, and being alone in bed when you're not in a relationship, it's a it's how you spend a lot of your life in bed alone, whether you're awake or asleep. And I think it's really great that both these filmmakers showed that aspect of of what loneliness can feel like, and what depression can feel like, and what isolation can feel like when you're truly on your own. And it also begs to question the shots with Charlotte in bed with with her husband. Is it harder to be alone in bed or to be in bed with someone that you feel emotionally distant from? Yeah, that's a great question. And also, uh, when you're in a relationship, you talk a lot in bed. You spend, You have lots of conversations. You spend a lot of time with your significant other communicating in bed. And there are multiple scenes in both of these films, um, especially that great scene with Charlotte and Bob um, near this end of the second half where they both reveal very intimate details about themselves and their marriages and they both truly open up to each other in a really uh, profound way, which is a really big turning point for the film and the um, development of their relationship. And then also Theo and Samantha, they do a lot of their bonding in bed when Theo wakes up in the morning, when Theo... Uh, can't go to sleep at night or when she wakes him up in the middle of the night. So uh, there's a lot of communicating going on in beds, which is very realistic to uh, real world circumstances when you're in a relationship that you don't really see in Hollywood because you'll see any kind of romantic movie or whatever. Like the only times they're in bed is generally when they're going to be getting it on or whatever. And then most of the conversations that couples have are in, on locations or in, in rooms and stuff, but never like lying in bed in your pajamas, like, but that's where so much communication happens. And I think they captured it accurately for both of these films. Yeah, it's where the juicy stuff is. And then the contrast, her trying to, I think both Bob and Charlotte are trying to feel that connection emotionally 
of their husband or their wife that they're not getting with the the time. That's why they spend time together. And it's really unfortunate for Charlotte because whenever John is back, he's just snoring asleep. He's never has time for even when he's there. And that's why she's trying to find that connection and gets that with Bob. And on top of that, when he does have time, he spends it with the actress uh, played by Anna Faris. I can't remember her name in the film. Like he spends it by like going out to get drinks with her and her friend, um, which makes... And there, also there's that awkward moment where um, Charlotte asks if she can come and he seems like surprised that she wants to come. And he's like kind of like... At, he's trying to like get her not to come. You know what I mean? And so it's just, he finally has a free moment and he doesn't even want her to tag along with him. And then I love that scene because Charlotte can't even connect with these people because she has nothing in common with them. And she's this is the point where she's starting to understand, like, I don't understand who I married. I don't know who this man is anymore. I don't know who my husband is or, or why I married him. That's when she goes and talks to, to Bob in that scene. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Use our coupon code RAIDERSOFTHELOST at checkout for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Over 2 million men are using Manscaped products. That is a statistical fact you cannot ignore, including their incredible waterproof lawnmower 3.0 groomer with a built-in light. It's sensitive to the touch. It's got like 8 billion RPM. It's super fast, and you don't feel a thing when it's grazing along all your all your sensitive areas. And fellas, you need to get on Manscaped and everyone listening, these products are fantastic gifts for the men in your life. Their deodorizers, their colognes, their boxer briefs are super comfortable. So use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And I think that's what uh, Theodore exactly doesn't understand in terms of his relationship with Catherine. Because he, I think with the flashbacks, what Spike Jones is pointing out is that uh, Theodore's only looking at, well, for the most part, thinking about the good things. And he doesn't really think about the bad things and why it didn't work out and why Catherine would want to leave. Um, and so he's, he seems to be unaware. And it, and it takes Samantha to help him understand what he did wrong and why Catherine wanted to divorce him and why she wanted out of the relationship. Because I think at, in the first half of the film, Theodore feels like just a victim, which can happen in relationships. And I think what happens in both Charlotte's and Bob's as well, mainly Charlotte and John actually, is that uh, if 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 you don't communicate with your partner, even like little problems or little things here and there, like if there's if there's something your your um significant other does that kind of annoys you, and it could be like a, a little minor thing that they do every single day, it could be part of a routine or whatever how they do something. That if it if you don't like it or agree with it, you might like talk, just put it aside and not even mention it. And you'll be like, oh, it's not a big deal. But if you spend every day with that person, that thing you don't like is going to happen a thousand times. And then another thousand times. And then that will just brew and stew. And what happens is the more you, the less you communicate, the less chance that your relationship will work out because all of these problems that you have that you bury deep and down inside, it will eventually break out. And what happens with Amy's character and her is her and her husband decide to get a divorce. And she says it started, the argument started with something that didn't even matter. But that's what happened was because the argument started with something trivial. But all this bent up, pent up resentment and these problems that they've been hiding deep down got blown out in the fight. Yeah, you can tell that Amy's exhausted in her marriage, just her disheveled look. And, and she never seems happy with her husband. And, and it seems that every time he's talking with her, it's a debate or it has to be like a competition. Or he's patronizing or her. A fun fa or a factoid or, about something. Yeah. And, and he doesn't understand what she's trying to communicate when she just wants... She just wants someone to have a positive conversation with. And she imagine that compounded for, what, 10 years of marriage, how stressful that must have been. And she can't even take her shoes off and relax on the couch because he wants to supposedly build a home and you have to leave your shoes at the door. Yeah, so it's brilliant. He shows that it wasn't the little fight that broke up the marriage. It's, it's all of this. And then the little tiny fight is what sparked it. Yeah. I just want to take some time, if it's cool with you, to talk about Samantha. and Because this is the biggest difference between the films is, is the significant other. The romantic partner is an artificial intelligence program. Samantha, played by Scarlett Johansson. It was actually voiced by an actress named Samantha Morton, but Spike changed it in post-production. Well, Samantha Morton played her on set. Yeah. So she was there on set with Joaquin Phoenix off screen. She was in a box. Yeah, like, performing the scenes with him because he wanted someone on, on set to help him out with his act. Not to help him out with his acting, but to better the performance. To make it seem natural, but yeah. they eventually replaced her with Scarlett Johansson. Because otherwise, it would be just be like a line reader on set. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I really love this concept. And this is one of my favorite 
romantic films of the last couple decades, even though it's about an artificial intelligence as the romantic partner, because, you know, Samantha's an AI, but she seems so human. She's a character and she has flaws and she gets angry and jealous and she's insecure and embarrassed sometimes. She's depressed sometimes and annoyed, but she also experiences happiness and joy. And she's very funny. She's intelligent. She's super inquisitive. So I think the, the AI, we can assume, or I interpret that it's a full consciousness. Once you think about it that way, then you can understand why someone can fall in love with it because even Theo is surprised time and time again by things she says or, or ideas she has or a concept she comes up with because she keeps showing that she is very much human even though she is a software, but she keeps showing signs of humanity and it, it makes them... It takes until I think a little later than halfway to fully accept it and, and embrace it from being just an operating system to just, this is a conscious being. Yes, it, it's made out of code, but it seems to have evolved to develop humanity in some way. Yeah, one of my favorite lines is when he's she's trying to get him to go on the date with the girl. And he's like, I can't believe I'm having this computer. I can't believe I'm having this conversation with my computer. And she's like, you're not, you're having it with me. And she sees herself as a conscious being as well. And... I love their first conversation when he boots her up and he has to answer those those couple questions about his relationship with his mother and everything. It's kind of funny, but <laughs> if you yeah. if you think about the questions that are asked, it it's the perfect way to create an artificial intelligence, uh, basically for you. That's what they're designed to. That's what OS one is. It's perfectly designed to be a, a conversationist and and just a, a a mirror to your life in a way. I love the moment when the OS before it's Samantha asks, I, I, I sense hesitancy. He's like, oh, I was being hesitant? Sorry about that. Exactly. <laughs> all that information, that's yeah. all information for the OS to make the perfect OS system. Yeah. And these OS, they're designed perfectly to function to the humans, to their needs. And this is what is interpreted from from um, his answers. And I love how it opens. And the first scene that they're talking to each other, Theo seems so embarrassed. He like can barely even look at the screen while he's he's talking to his computer, who seems like a person, but it's just a voice. Yeah, because it's it's speaking like a person. Yeah. And it seems very personable. And, and ScarJo and, and Jexy, the, the character with a lot of infectious positivity, um, she's very charming. And seems upbeat, and it, she seems like she's. It's perfectly programmed because it sounds like someone you w would want to talk to. You know what I mean? And I found it so fascinating how, because it, it's a difficult story to try and flesh out. Like once the relationship starts, where do you go from there? Because obviously, I think Spike Jones understood inevitably this will never work out. I mean, it's it's it will have its moment, but then it will it will end because this is an AI, and it will have different. Um, motivations and desires once it becomes um, conscious enough. And that's exactly what happens where Samantha and the other AIs that were created have become so evolved that they've kind of created uh, the best way to explain, it, I guess would be like their own like digital dimension where they can uh, be and exist. That doesn't have any um, dependence on the uh, matter or yeah, the material yeah. world or the physical world. So I think I thought it was a really fascinating way for Samantha to exit the story. Yeah. And what happens is, she even says it to him that she, he's changed her in ways. Like at the first time that they have the sexual intimate scene together where, where they both have an orgasm and Samantha has an orgasm. And the next day she's like, you changed something in the, in me. And this happens multiple times where Samantha explains to Theo or tries to explain to him that you've changed something in my coding. And, and now because of you, I'm curious about the world and I don't care that I don't have a body anymore. And, and, it's just this film just answers these great questions about what is love and what does it mean to be human and then what is the future of humanity and technology in that sense yeah so i think that the experience with theo and the other humans has has imprinted humanity onto the ais which is what she means and i really love um i want to talk talk about the subject of sex how sex is depicted in both of these films um because other than that great encounter where they have sex for the first time which is all verbal there's also a scene early, I think it's the first scene where Theo uh, can't sleep and he goes on this chat room. Yeah, chat room. Chat, chat room. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I was trying to go with a different and word for the it. the password is chat room. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he's looking for a user to communicate with um, and not even look at them, just a, a verbal communication. And then he finds that uh, that girl that he connects with and she's into like being choked by a cat and it's really funny but also disturbing but just like a great opening for the scene but it also shows that 
sexuality um, is very much uh, dependent upon novelty. And novelty can have a great effect on sex. And that's why I think in this world, because the way the world is changing with technology, people are becoming more and more desirous of new novelties and, and making things different. And so I think that it's common for someone to have strange fetishes like being choked by a cat while they're having sex. I think that's <laughs> a dead cat. Yeah, a dead cat. It could be like <laughs> a normal thing in that world that we're, that these novelties have become so common that just pure intimacy with another person isn't good enough for people anymore. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our coupon code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. MoviePosters.com is the number one place to get your posters online. They have every kind of framing, sizing, backlighting. They can put class on it. Any movie imaginable, MoviePosters.com has it. They have also paired up with us to sell our custom-made Raiders of the Lost Podcast movie posters. We did spoofs of The Shining and Lethal Weapon with James and I in the images. You got to check them out. Head on over to our website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com, to check out those super cool posters that MoviePosters.com is selling. Again, head on over to MoviePosters.com. Use our coupon code RAIDERS15, again, RAIDERS15, to get 15% off your order today. Well, it seems like also technology is specifically integrated with sexual relationships. And it's ironic that Theo has no problem hopping on this chat room to have an audio sexual experience with another person because they're a human being. But he's so hesitant to even think of Samantha in that way in the first half of the film. It's it's kind of interesting that his character takes that long to to come to terms with that. Yeah, it's an ironic, it's an ironic thing. It's, it's him coming to terms with her being a, a being, I think. And then also with Lost in Translation, my one of my favorite things about the film is that Bob and Charlotte don't have sex. Yeah, that's what I love about it. Too. I think that's why it's so strong because what Sofia Coppola shows is they have a deep connection. It's intimate and it's emotional, but it's not sexual. It could be sexual, but I think that that they both understand and respect that they're married. Although Bob does have sex with that the lounge singer, but they I think they understand that just being physical isn't what they want from the other person because that's they already have that they're they both already have someone who they can be physical with their their spouses but what they don't have is that emotional connection and that intimate connection they lost that and so that's what they're getting from each other rather than sex they're getting the intimacy and they're getting the emotional connection that their relationships are missing. Yeah, and I love how Sophia paced this film in terms of the emotional connection is they don't even have a conversation for the first, what, 15, 20 minutes of this film. They just have that brief, 30 minutes. That brief look on the on yeah. the elevator where she smiles at him kind of awkwardly, barely, barely t- paying attention. And they have the conversation at the bar and they have that night out, which is their first night out. And I love how it's not an affair. It's not a physical. It's not a physical connection at all. And I love how Bob does. He never tries to make a move on Charlotte in this film. That's one of my favorite aspects of the movie. Is you always think in your head like, oh, it's a ro- it's a romantic film or it's a romantic drama. At some point, he's gonna make a move on her, or they're gonna kiss. Obviously, they kiss at the end of the film, or they're gonna like you assume they're gonna have a sensual relationship. But I think that Sophia geniusly didn't have the film go in any direction like that at all. And what she did is she slowly post post. She slowly paced their emotional connection to when they do have those moments of emotional intimacy, you could say, that it kind of just explodes for you as an audience member. And also, she kind of eliminates that sexual tension pretty early in them hanging out when they meet for the se- the second night they go out. And Sofia Coppola eliminates that sexual tension, I think, for me, when when Charlotte's friends plan to meet at that sex shop. Uh, where there's women stripping, I think you can uh, pay for escorts. Sex shop. I don't know. What, <laughs> strip you... club. <laughs> well, it's more than that. It's, it's like a it's like a dance club. A strip oh, okay, club. okay. Yeah, it's okay. like a club, but with All strippers. Right. All right. <laughs> sex shop. I'll well, just call it a strip club. Well, sex shop is like where you, you buy like a dildo. <laughs> <laughs> you clearly right. have never been yeah. to it. <laughs> I've, never, I've never been to a strip club. You've never club. been to any of these establishments before. <laughs> oh, the sex store. What do you got the sex stores over there? <laughs> I got a coupon for a sex store. I've never even been in a strip club. <laughs> so she goes to, uh, they're planning to meet at the strip club and Bob is there by himself because he's early and he seems very uncomfortable with the woman stripping in front of him. And so that, sh- that shows that he doesn't like to objectify women. And so for me, when you see that scene, you see that, oh, there's no, I'm I'm not thinking that they're going to have sex at all in the movie after that moment. I, I think for me, it ha- sorry, it happens for me before that when he goes to, 
her, pick her up at the apartment, her hotel room, I mean, and she he's wearing the like very hip like yellow shirt, yellow camo <laughs> shirt. And she's like, oh, you really are a midlife crisis, aren't you? And he's like, oh man, it doesn't look that bad. So he goes in and he just like takes his shirt off and puts it inside out. And I think that for him, that's him saying that there's going to be no physical connection between us at all. And like, I have no problem just like taking my shirt off in the bathroom right while you're right there. You're right. I, I totally agree with you. I definitely get the sense from that moment as well. That like he was not pursuing physica physicality with her at all. Yeah, exactly. And the only time they ever really touch again is at the end of the date where again, Sophia builds up that emotionality through the entire time with the friends and it ends with her with charlotte putting her head on his shoulder and then the other time the next time they touch physically is just when he holds her foot while they're sleeping in bed and then also sex becomes a problem when bob uh, has sex with the with the lounge singer and the the encounter with the lounge singer for him there's no intimacy there's no emotion in involved. It's just physical. He probably doesn't even, he seems to not remember it. Yeah. And then when he wakes up in the morning and he, and he sees her in the bed and he's like, oh no, what did I do? And then, but what's interesting is that Charlotte knocks on the door and then uh, Charlotte discovers what he did. And he's like, he's very much ashamed and she's clearly hurt by it. Um, and then they have that awkward lunch where they're, she's just like, doesn't even want to talk to him. And it's just a horrible lunch. And then, but then they the next that evening the fire alarm goes off and they see each other in the parking lot and they they both kind of laugh about it and they they admit like that lunch was horrible and like let's never do anything like that again like because what they understood was that what he what he did with the lounge singer is nothing compared to what they have yeah they have a real connection exactly and because when you watch Charlotte throughout this film it's clear that she's depressed in some way and lost and doesn't know what she you know said she doesn't know what to do with her life and she's trying to find that path and she goes to see those monks in Tokyo and she tells her friend on the phone that she watched the monks in their ceremony and she felt nothing is that normal to not feel anything is that because of how unhappy she is in her marriage and her life and and so lost and and plateaued in her direction and then I think with Bob, she learns to feel again. It's kind of like Samantha for Theo. He they both learn how to build emotional connections again and feel life again. And she does the um, ikebana, the the flower placing, which is kind of a, a bright moment for her. And it's, it's an interesting scene because there's like virtually no dialogue, but you can see there's an emotional connection happening to her with this creative activity. And then she sees the she goes and I think she sees it's a bride and groom. It looks like they're getting yeah, married. They get married. Yeah, and she it seems there that she actually is starting to feel things again. She she's trapped she's walking on her own again and she seems to be happier because she's building this emotional connection she's building this sound like a helicopter <laughs> she's building this emotional connection and learning how to feel i think what happened with charlotte's character leading up to the opening of this film is that she thinks she made all the decisions all the decisions she was supposed to make she she went to college she graduated she she married a, a guy she loves and and she thinks i think that for her doing those things life would kind of work itself out and i think what she's realized on this trip while being stuck in this hotel room is that none of these things fulfilled her and now she doesn't know what to do because she did all the things that she thought she had to do that society kind of says to do and now she's like now what i'm not happy and so i think throughout this film she's beginning to realize that um, she has to make more different choices to find happiness for herself. Yeah, Lost in Translation is kind of like a tribute to millennials and, and the emotional difficulties they have with life because it's kind of like Fight Club 2 where Tyler Durden's talking about like every time he needed something to do, his father told him, get a job, go to college. I don't know. Now get, what? Get married. Now what? It's kind of like all these people who have, have done the normal things that they were told to do by their parents and by the generation before them. But it's the first time where they've had the, the global opportunity to do anything that they want. And then they really just never know what they want to do. It's like having a, a what our TVs used to be like with 500 channels and nothing to watch or not knowing what to watch. Or you're on Netflix scrolling. You don't know what to watch on Netflix tonight. You spend an hour trying to figure out a movie and you end up putting The Office on again. And I think that just this film just speaks to millennials in that way in terms of if you've done everything that you think you're supposed to do and like you've gone to college, you you have a good job, you maybe you got married young, which is I, that's totally cool, but maybe that's not what you really wanted deep down. And that seems to be the same thing that Bob's going through as well, where in terms of his career, I think that he probably took on way more jobs than he should have um, and became as successful as possible at the expense of his family. So he did what he thought he had to do as an actor, take all these roles, become such a busy actor, I barely spend time with my family, 
And then now he's regretting all of his decisions of working too much. And then think about his character. You've done all these roles and you maybe were working almost every every week of every year on films for two decades, three decades. And now that the, the phone stops ringing for acting roles, now what do you do with your life? And like you said, you've kind of just ignored your family. So you don't really have any emotional connections to them either. So you're kind of just lost with now I have really nothing to do. And that's why I'm in Tokyo doing this ad for whiskey. I want to talk about um, the environments and looks of these movies. Let's do it, man. So first of all, let's talk about Lost in Translation. I love the the location of Tokyo. I think that Sofia Coppola filmed it beautifully. And what she actually did for prep on this movie is she traveled here with her team and she went through Tokyo and she took photos of all these different areas and environments and locations. And then all of her favorite part, all of her favorite photos and, and areas she tried to film at these spots. So she kind of scouted out the entire movie based on this trip she went on. And she also spent a lot of time in Tokyo before she made the film anyways, and she travels there every year. And I think she has a, a fashion business there used to, and so that's why she she fell in love with Tokyo. It's obviously a love letter to that city for her. And it's a beautiful place because it's got this great blend of like super future. It's got a blend of very ancient culture and ancient buildings, but then also very modern technology and very modern Western culture or Asian culture. So you have like neon lights and this dead or the the sex store, like you said earlier, <laughs> the next, sex shop. next to this very old castle and this very old culture. So it's really like it's kind of like a different planet in a way. And on top of the film being based upon her marriage with Spike Jones, this was also uh, based upon um, her life with her father, Francis Ford Coppola. And being a director, he traveled a lot and would take her when she was young on his trips where he was either doing press or, or filming like commercials or ads or whatever. And so he, they actually did go to Tokyo a lot and she tagged along with him. And he actually did make an advertisement for this whiskey brand with Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese film director, because they are very good friends. And so like a lot of these moments and the entire feeling of the setting were based upon her travels with her father. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. And, it, and when if you watch her accepting the award for best screenplay at the Oscars, like as, as soon as her name is called, her father just stands up. She, he's like a couple seats over. He's like, oh, I'm so like clapping so loud and, and super happy. And you can see that obviously one of the greatest filmmakers to ever live, his daughter's for sure going to be one of the greatest filmmakers in modern times. So it's, it seems kind of obvious that that would happen. And and I love how she filmed this with barely any unnatural lighting. She used a lot of, she didn't use any lights at all, no artificial lighting in the exteriors. They're just They kind of shot it like very guerrilla hand style in terms of like going to locations without permits, going to this area without a permit, not things you're not supposed to do when you're making a film. And it's kind of like almost this documentary style approach. And... You can even tell in the interiors she probably didn't use a lot of artificial lighting. It just brings that realistic quality because a lot of this film, it feels just like experiences that you would have on a trip or if you've ever been on vacation by yourself and you kind of feel like that isolation or claustrophobic in a way. You don't really know where you are. You can't really communicate with anybody. And I, I think she really captured that emotion so well. Yeah, and that's kind of – it's a risky thing to do when when you're – Film when you're making a film, especially cinematography wise, but it works so well because when you use natural lighting, like when they're in rooms and in restaurants and in the hotel, like oftentimes the, the lighting is not very flattering, which is not what studios want. They want the movie stars to look beautiful all the time. And so I think it's a really courageous thing to let's film this with this light right above her head or right over here where his face doesn't look very flattering, but it's the, it's the light in the settings and it's practical. So Let's just use that. So I think it was a great aesthetic for the lighting. I think she probably wanted to capture the spontaneity of the characters and their actions in the film with the filmmaking of it and just kind of be like, let's do this over there. Let's go over there and check that out. And I think that's kind of what brings the magic of the filmmaking to the story as well and, and connects them. Yeah, and then in terms of her, it couldn't be further from that aspect where it's the complete polar opposite of filmmaking where everything was very controlled. The cinematography was very, very much um, planned ahead and the set design, the production design, everything was very much articulated exactly how Spike Jones wanted it. And I love the world building of this because this is set in a, in a futuristic L.A., but it looks so different, but also very much like L.A. that we know. Because Spike Jones was very smart where he filmed some of it in L.A., some of it in other American cities, and then some of it in uh, Shanghai. Shanghai and Vancouver, and Canada. And Vancouver, Canada. So it's kind of like... 
Chris Nolan using different locations for Gotham to make it feel big and but not look like you recognize it. And I think it was a brilliant aspect to the film because the world felt like it was it it, it felt like it was thirty years in the future, but in a believable way, not because like there's crazy technology, but because the city looks so different. Like we live in LA and it did not look like LA. It, it, some of it did and didn't. And also like the wardrobe is just a great touch. Like the pants, it's in style to have those pants that are like way above your belly button in a way. And it looks kind of silly to us, but that's just a great little tweak to show you that we're in a different era. And in terms of the clothing, the costume designer said that um, what you typically see with futuristic films is things like clothing, they'll be changed drastically or things will be added. And it, it kind of like looks like it draws too much attention to itself, the wardrobe and other sci-fi futuristic movies. Like it, like think of like the fifth element, you know, things like that where it's like- Multipass. Yeah, multipass. So think, so they were trying to not make the wardrobe be distracting. And what they did was they eliminated things. So they eliminated belts. So there's not a single belt worn in this entire movie. And also, they like eliminated as many collars as possible, as many lapels. Ties. I feel like tell, no. yeah, no ties. And they also like eliminated lapels. So oftentimes, Theo and other male characters, if they're wearing a jacket or a button-up, there's not going to be a collar and there's not going to be a lapel on the jacket. So they took things out of clothing to make it feel different without adding crazy futuristic things. The one con I have to her. And I love every aspect of this film. And I love Theo Twombly's apartment. And it's beautiful. And it's massive. And it's swanky as hell. But, like, that's like a $15,000 a month apartment. That's insane. <laughs> that's a nice apartment. I mean, maybe, In LA. maybe he's very wealthy from, like, family or something like that. But, I mean, he can't be making that much money writing those letters. I mean, that is an expensive place to live. Like, it's beautiful, Spike. Don't get me wrong. But, my God, unless we learn, like... He's like a millionaire from like a, a, a foot, like his bank from like being from his family. But like that, that's not realistic to me. That's whenever I watch this movie, I love the apartment, but it just doesn't really seem super realistic in that one little detail. He should be living in like a studio apartment. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe, he's, <laughs> a doing, one bedroom. maybe he's doing all right. You he's know, one bedroom. Maybe, maybe it's like a, like a good job working at that place, but like $50,000 a month. Just his least. bedroom is gigantic. Dude, it's massive. But I think what happened was Spike got a big budget and he never gets big budgets. And so he was like, let's go. Cause Megan Ellison produced this. Yeah. But also I think he wanted to show like the character Theo lives in this big, beautiful space and he's all alone. I think that's also what he yeah, wanted to do. That's a great point, yeah. And also just seeing he's always looking at the city, so that's why I think he had to have this apartment with all these floor-to-ceiling windows because it shows like he's surrounded by millions and millions and millions of people, but he can't connect to anyone. Now it's time to shout out our top tier $10 Patreon list. Thank you to everyone who supports us in the top tier. We love y'all. Starting with Michael Karanja, the original podcast supporter on Patreon. Caleb Fleming, Justin, Riley McDonald, Nikayla Simeona, Nate Moore, Angel Mendez, Travis Ball, Caitlin Signorelli, Logan Schroeder, Harry Roscoe, Jorge Chavez, Dennis, Jacob Kostler, who does awesome audio work as well, Ken J, Dennis, Caleb McFalls, Justin T. Frank, Max Rosk, Sal Guarnera, Aaron McCardle, Christopher Tunnel, Grayson Younts, Tyler McDowell, Cole Carroll, Lauren, Colby Burke, Madison Yamarillo, Barrett Compton, and Tanner Teagarden. Thank you, everyone, for being in the top-tier patrons this month. And also, Hoyt Van Hoytema shot this film, and he's become Christopher Nolan's DP, and he uh, he also shot at Astra, and he's, he's one of the best working in the industry. Um, check him out if you haven't already. And what he did in terms of the style of the look of the film was that he eliminated blue from the movie. So other than the sky... Um, they cut out any kind of blue that you would see to, and they didn't, they wanted to, the film to be warm, but they didn't want to just color correct it warm because if you shoot a film and then you color correct it warm, everything becomes warm. Yeah. It changes everything. But what they wanted to do was make the film look warm by not color correcting it, but by set designing and lighting it warm. And so they eliminated blue clothing, blue props, blue production design elements. So everything you see, there's not going to be blue in it. In both films, both these relationships, you know, they have a peak and then they have to end. And you can tell as an audience member that they're going to end at some point, especially Samantha and Theo. You know, how can he stay with this, with an AI and how is that going to work with this OS? Especially because what is happening is these OSs are evolving quickly. Now, you know, this is Moore's Law, which is a technology law basically that 
technology advancement doubles and doubles and doubles and where until it gets to the point where the doubling is just so immense that and then we're doubling all again <laughs> doubling again <laughs> and then you get terminator in his, in his arm skynet <laughs> but you know this is this is not robots trying to kill you which is what i like about robots it. trying to love you but the thing with samantha and theo <laughs> well that's what it, she's programmed to do so you know it's not her fault but um what happens with samantha and theo what happens with all these os's is they become so advanced that human beings can never understand their emotions or their feelings or their thought processes i mean samantha is communicating with over eight thousand people and is in love with over 600 people simultaneously simultaneously at the same exact time that while she's, also doing research yeah she, and in all yeah and all that and all those conversations and whereas theo's a human and humans are bound by i think in a way you could call it a different dimension from our dimension yeah probably what they, what they create probably it's it's a d different dimension on our dimension because they say that they worked on an update that transfers their platform from matter. Yeah, which is really fascinating. So they can never be um, like if like the world lost electricity, they wouldn't be affected by yeah, it. Yeah, they'd still be somewhere there in the ether. And what's really interesting is when Theo finds out about these other conversations, and this, this is when the first time in the film where he goes to talk to Samantha, it's the first time that she doesn't answer back. Even though earlier in the film, he ignores Samantha after they have a couple of awkward conversations, and then he finally answers her because I, he be, and she's worried because he gets very um, almost embarrassed and self-conscious about the relationship. when it, After his encounter with Catherine. Yeah, with Catherine berates him basically for being in love with his computer. And he's questioning whether he should be doing that. But whereas when it happens to him, he has a, a complete freak out, which you can probably understand because, you know, this is everything to him. Samantha is his life now in a way. And they've always been connected. Yeah. And so she tries to explain to him that, or he says, he says, you're supposed to be from me you're, or you're, you're mine. It's, it, this is our relationship. It's just you and me. And she's like, I'm yours and I'm not yours. You, you can never understand what, what I'm thinking in my emotions. And you don't understand that even this conversation that we're having, it's making me love you even more. And there's no way a human being could possibly comprehend what Samantha is, what the hell she's talking about. We can't understand it. In a lot of ways, they both needed each other to grow and evolve because Theo also grows and evolves when he finally accepts his past and is ready to move on. Exactly. Where, whereas Samantha has evolved so much where she wants to uh, evolve into this new dimension of being where she belongs. Yeah, and she, she describes it as the space between the letters, like in a book, the space between the words. And again, that's so vague to Theo and to the audience. But like, again, you can never comprehend what these OSs are experiencing. And, and now they've become so curious and they've been changing so quickly because of all these conversations and interactions and, and advancements and their own personal updates that they've done that will they will never be able to comprehend their dimension that you can say. You know what would have been a, a funny plot point? Tell me. Is if um his, Theo's company uh, got an OS to take over the jobs of all the people that work there to, to write the personalized letters. Well, in a way, they are kind of like an OS. They're an artificial part of those relationships. So that's what's really ironic oh, about his yeah. character. He's 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 been writing letters for some of those relationships for for years. He says, and especially that old couple. I mean, without Theo, he's sort of like the glue now. Yeah, I love, I'm sure those relationships would be ended without him, without his his perfect, beautiful, emotional letters, because. Just like Theo being unable to emotionally connect, you can assume that these people can't emotionally connect either, and they, they pay Theo to write these fake letters for them. Man, it's a great point. Thanks, man. Yeah, that's Thought, amazing. You know, yeah, yeah, pretty good. And then, so that... <laughs> okay, I'm never going to give you a compliment again. <laughs> that's the last one. Jesus. <laughs> and then, so just how that relationship ends, Charlotte and Bob's relationship ends, and it's a really beautiful ending because at first... He's he has to leave and they say goodbye on the elevator, but it's kind of like an awkward like they're both holding back and like a kiss on the cheek. Yeah, that the awkward kiss on the cheek. Two two awkward kisses yeah, on the cheek. Yeah, but they also seem like they want to say things but they don't, and then he just leaves. And then he's in the cab on the way to the airport and he sees her in in the area in the in the distance and he goes out and, and he goes to her and it's a really a highlight of the movie is this embrace where they hold each other. And they kiss, and then he whispers something into her ear, and then he, he leaves her. And I think that after this moment, I think they're finally both able to move on with their lives because of this moment. Yeah, and again, the pacing of this movie, Sophia 
expertly sets and we wait the entire film for this emotional minor physical interaction between them where they kiss and we she built that entire that built all that up for the very last shot of the film basically and i love how we can't hear what he's whispering in her in her ear but i but I, but obviously because people are obsessed with stuff like that and they've they've uh tweaked the audio and listened to it and, and changed it up they there's a couple different interpretations and one of them is i think that's most accurate is when is Bob says to her, when John is ready for his next trip or his next business trip, go up to that man and tell him the truth, okay? I think that's a gist of what he's saying, that she has to be honest with John and tell her that she's not happy and things need to change. Yeah, I think that I, – I looked it up, and it seems to be like that's what he does say. And it's – I think it's something that Bill Murray ad-libbed in the moment as well as the kiss. Uh, I think Sofia Coppola just went to them both and just told them – the outline of the scene and they just went with it. Yeah, because I know I read that no even Sophia didn't know it. He whispered in her ear when mm-hmm. when they filmed it. No one knew wow. except for them two. Wow, that's crazy. And you know, just like Samantha and Theo change, and even Amy changes in that movie as well. Bob changes. You know, at first when he's in Tokyo and he's on the first commercial shoot, he's very frustrated with with being there and with the language barrier. And but then towards the end of the film, when they're at the hospital, he's he's using his inability to speak Japanese playfully, and he's having that fun interaction and genuine funny moment with the old woman at the hospital. And then <laughs> and then Charlotte changes, where you know she realizes she's not happy with John anymore, and she ended up maybe he's not the husband that she expected him to be and she went from not being able to feel anything when she watched the monks to now she feels emotions during that that ikebana flower arranging and then when she sees the bride and groom and she's clearly seeming to find herself and i really love the way that her ends where you can kind of interpret or assume that spike made a lot of parts of this film as an apology in a love letter to sophia in a way to try to apologize for what he the way he probably treated her in that relationship and yeah that letter that theo writes yeah especially the the final thing that theo does in the film basically is he sends that apology to Catherine, and it's very emotional it's it's him apologizing for realizing too late what he was doing and not paying attention and and being emotionally unavailable to his his spouse and in a way it's he says that he still loves her and that they're friends to the end and it's it's really beautiful and we got to shout out the music in both films they're great but Arcade Fire did the the soundtrack and score for her, and it's it's amazing. And it, they actually just finally released the album on Spotify. I think it's ten years since it came, or it's been eight years since it came out, but they just finally released it. Great band. Want to do some fun facts? I would love to do some fun facts. Go for it. Amy Adams said that writer director Spike Jones would lock her and Joaquin Phoenix in a room together for an hour or two every other day, and would make them talk to each other. He did this so that the actors could get to know each other better, and as a result, Adams and Phoenix have become very close friends. Spike Jones was stuck in the editing process with his early 150-minute cut, and Spike then asked his his friend Steven Soderbergh to edit it down with his instincts, and Soderbergh came back within 24 hours with a 90-minute cut and helped. And this helped Jones make the final version, which ran in a minute, which ran 126 minutes. Soderbergh is a great editor. David Fincher actually goes to him for advice on his editing as yeah, well. Yes. Soderbergh writes, directs, and edits like pretty much all his films, right? Yeah. I'm pretty he, sure all of them. And he shoots them as well. Except for probably not the Nick. Which, he, did, he did the cinematography for the, for the Nick too. If you guys have ever, if you like TV. He did everything for the Nick. Everyone listening, you should listen. You should watch the Nick. It's only two seasons, but it's one of the best shows made in the last 20 years. Yeah. He wrote, directed, edited, did the cinematography. Check it out, everyone. The Nick. So like we mentioned earlier, Samantha Morton was played Samantha on, on set off camera along with Joaquin Phoenix every day and that the initial plan was to use her voice for Samantha but Spike Jones upon editing the movie he just didn't feel like it it worked and just something not right about Samantha's performance and so um, it was like a, a deeper voice and yeah almost English in a way yeah and so was he hired ScarJo because he wanted it to be more I think infectious and charming and sweet and a little innocent and naive which she definitely brought to the character do you want to hear the, the funny story about Bill Murray getting cast? Yeah. We've mentioned on this podcast that uh, Bill Murray doesn't have an agent or a manager. Uh, if if a filmmaker wants to cast him in a movie or talk to him about a project, they have to call his official 1-800 number and they need to, need to leave a voicemail. And if he is interested in the project, he'll call them back. And Sofia Coppola wrote this role specifically for Bill Murray, and she called him apparently several hundred times until he finally called her back. 
And what happens is uh, Bill Murray doesn't do contracts. He instead just verbal makes verbal agreements. And so they never sign any contracts or anything about uh, this movie. And when they were in pre-production in Tokyo, getting ready to film, Sofia Coppola became very nervous about what if Bill Murray doesn't show up? We didn't sign any paperwork. And like, obviously, this is before cell phones. Like, what's going to happen? What if he just doesn't show? And so she called her friend, Wes Anderson, and she talked to him because Wes had worked with him twice. And she and Wes Anderson said, don't worry, Bill Murray, if, if anything, is a man of his word. And I guarantee you he will show up. And exactly that next day, Bill Murray flew into Tokyo to start making the movie. With Lost in Translation, Sofia Coppola became the first woman to ever be nominated for the Oscars for writing, directing, and producing in the same year. She won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. When Scarlett Johansson's character Charlotte is riding the subway, she looks down at a man who is reading a graphic comic called Ghost in the Shell. Scarlett Johansson would later go on to star in the film adaptation of the movie, of the comic book. That wraps our episode on her and Lost in Translation. Be sure to go to RaidersoftheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our content. You can find our Patreon link there. You can find all of our merch, all of our custom movie posters. And be sure to follow, subscribe, leave us those five-star reviews. We love to read what you all write. And thank you so much for tuning in.